Right on. So we're here with my friend Larry. And um, first of all, I appreciate you doing this, Larry. You're welcome, right? man. So I um, got connected with you through my sponsor, mm-hmm. right? And you came out and you chaired a meeting that we go to. And your message, it resonated with me, right? It was, it was phenomenal. And we've only met in person once. Maybe twice. Maybe twice. Pro- yeah. Your memory is probably better than mine. Oh, uh, don't. Don't put that on <laughs> me. No way. No way. And, but I do receive a text message from you every morning. Every morning. And we'll get to that, too, because that's a cool story. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah. And so I feel like I know you better than I actually know you, right? Um, I, I get that. I, I, maybe you're meaning to say, I understand you instead of know you. That's it. Okay. Right. Um, what you're doing here, I, 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 I got to tell you, EJ, I'm, I'm really, first, thank you for inviting me. Um, what you're doing here is so important to our culture right. of recovery. Storytelling, like storytelling, you know, has been important since the dawn of time. You know, the, 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 the cavemen and the, and early Egypt, even our own native Americans with the hieroglyphs and the petroglyphs, they're telling stories. There's a very popular meme on social media right now where the, the kid is asking the dad, Hey dad, what did you do during the, during the pandemic? You know, (laughs) and dad says something like, you know, scotch whiskey, son. I drank a lot of scotch whiskey. And and and, and uh, the kid says, epic. <laughs> so, like, even as kids, we want our parents to, you know, when you were seven years old, EJ, we went this place. You know, storytelling, it's important. Yes. And, and we tell stories, not just hanging out like this, but in meetings, we tell stories about recovery. Um, it, it, it keeps our predecessors alive and it gives the newcomers something to hook into. Right. You already said it, that something I said in Los Banos resonated with you. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? We share our experience, strength and hopes. And if somebody gets something out of it, well, that's the, that's, that's the recovery way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, the therapeutic value of mm-hmm. one addict mm-hmm. helping another, right? And, and so when we, when we got to thinking about people to interview for this podcast, of course, you're on the list, right? And I appreciate so that. We, we typically always like to start it off by asking, you know, like, what's your clean date, Larry? My clean date is September 27, 2000. Right. So it's 22 At, years almost. Um, we're already into 22. Oh. This coming September will be 23. And I brought show and tell. Right. Okay. I guess I'm not a math major. <laughs> right. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Sorensen's Ace Hardware, located at 402 Washington Avenue in Los Banos, proudly serving the community since 1947. Please check out our friend at Sorensen's for all your hardware needs. Come on, guys. Support those who support us. Thanks, Sorensen's. And neither am I. All Look, right. I have 0.00 days of high school education, all right? So uh, uh, I, I don't do, but I can do ways and measures. Oh, I, I know the two halves make an ounce, so. right? <laughs> um, but my clean dates is, um, and, and there's a story. Okay. September 27, 2000. Um, for the first two and a half years, 
I believed that September 27, by the way, that's, uh, that's also the same date that Cliff Burton, the basis for Metallica, he passed away on September 27. So I get to, that's important to me now because I'm a big Metallica guy. Um, I always thought that that meant that the last day that I used was September 26 until um, I went to work and I got a relationship with a judge and, uh, and he sent me this photo. Should I turn it right there? This is three of my, not all of, but three of my most recent booking photos. And I thought it was really cool. That is, cool. you know, the faces of math, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, I hang this in my office so that uh, my clients know that I, the only difference between me and them is I got here before they did. Right. That I I speak their language. I know their struggle. I understand their pain. But I saw the date on this last picture, and it said September twenty four of two thousand. Well. That doesn't that doesn't jive with September twenty seven. Uh, typically, most people um, pick their clean date as the first day that they haven't used, including drinking. Right. Right. Um, so I I struggled with that. Here I now have proof because this is a picture of the last day that I used. Right. So I know that the very next day is my first day, and that's not the twenty seventh. But I already had, what, two and a half years clean at that time. So I, like, what do I do? Do I change my clean date to the 25th? But Cliff Burton, the 27th, I, I already celebrate. It's already ingrained in me that September 27, 2000 is my day. It's my day. And I, I know that the 25th was the first day. But I will continue celebrating on the 27th. And, and that just kind of shows a lot of times where we're at when we come in, right? Like sometimes the date, oh, when's the last time you were keeping track of dates before you got clean, no. right? No, 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 no. Everything now, everything, when I try to remember something from the past, everything begins and ends with September 27, 2000. Right. Because when did that happen? When did I last see him? It was before then or after then. Yeah, that's that's the starting date for the whole the whole new deal, right? It's like BC and AD. You're right, it is exactly <laughs> right. like that. Right, right, the two right. different chronicles of the right. same. Yeah. So the 27th is 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 uh, and it's more important than my bio birthday. Right. Uh, I was born on September 11. All right, and now that's another kind of, significant and, date. And then something else happened on that day, right? But my bio birthday, eh, not that big of a deal, right? right? I, I look, I'll go, I'll go to dinner with my wife on my bio birthday, but ah, my recovery birthday, yeah, you know, that's my clean day. That's what I, 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 uh, I do things with my fellowship, yeah, my sponsor, my sponsees, my brothers and sisters, my grandkids. All right, so. Yeah, September 27, 2000, we're going to stick with that one. I haven't got the tattoo yet, you know, ah, ah, but, uh, but we're going to keep that date. Right. 
Sorensen's also has a Modesto location located at 1433 Coffee Road. Modesto True Value for all your hardware needs. For all of our people out in the Modesto area, please support those who support us. Thank you. We don't look like addicts anymore, mm. right? Like, mm. and I think that, like, for me, when I came into the rooms and I seen all the people and in the attitude in there, the upbeat laughing, I'm like, these people aren't like me because when yeah. I when I drug up to shore, I was pretty sad, right? I was, I was pretty sad. Nothing sack. was funny. Nothing was happy. So I typically like to, you know, we like to go back a little bit and, and talk about that, right? Like the ways and means and and. What brought you to the point to where, you know, because for a lot of us in that, in our addiction, like the drug seemed like the solution to whatever was ailing us, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, would you care to elaborate that on that sure. a little bit? Sure. Um, we, uh, in the rooms of recovery, we try not to, what used to be called uh, drugology or, you know, drug stories, but um, even in, this book that we sometimes read, it's not very big. It's just basic. Right. Um, it has personal stories. And for that reason is to help people relate. It's that hook. Man, I, I really identify. I really relate. And that's part of the hook for bringing people into the rooms of recovery. So our, our past, our history, our experience with that is also important. Right. right? I, um, 1971. I was 10 years old. Um, I was at home after school by myself, listening to my Partridge family album. Hello world. It's the song that was singing. Come on, get happy. You know, like I, I was rolling with the Partridge. Right. And uh, my two older brothers walked in the living room broke my Partridge family album. I literally took it off the record player and snapped it, stuck a joint in my mouth for the very first time, knocked me down on the couch and put on, I am Iron Man. (laughs) Right? So I got stoned for the very first time and, well, this was my first spiritual experience, right. you know? Yeah. Like at that moment, I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, you know, is just mind boggling this sound and this feeling, you know, I like, oh, I, I look back on it now. Cause I, after that, I ran around the neighborhood to tell all my other little kid friends about, you know, ha. Hi, Mrs. Wilson. Is Billy home? The new Paranoid album is out. <laughs> you know, all red faced and red eyed. I can only imagine what they thought. All them Ray boys, you know. Uh, and uh, but I knew I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. I was going to smoke pot and and listen to Ozzy Osbourne, right? And and I would have gotten away with it too had it not been for uh, a linebacker who played for. Uh, Visalia Police Department on well, we now know it was September 24th of 2000 <laughs> who pulled me over on my bicycle. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It, it wasn't my bicycle. I don't know whose bike it was, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he pulled me over and uh, he said, I'm sorry, uh, you have a warrant and I'm going to have to take you in because I would never show up for court. But I'm also not a stander stiller guy. Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're going to arrest me? Here you go. 
no, no. If you're going to arrest me, you have to earn it. Okay. So get your track shoes on. All right. This is a competition. You are going to have to catch me. Every time that I got arrested, you're going to have to catch me. All right. Um, but I was never a hardened criminal, although my sentencing judge in court called me a criminal. I'm a dumpster diver. What do you mean? I'm not a criminal. I'm not, I'm not hurting people. You know, the, always my charges are under the influence, possession, and uh, paraphernalia. Right. You know, I didn't have, I couldn't do the, I couldn't break into people's house. I was never that brave. All right. Um, but uh, that last time in court, when that judge, who it was always the same judge for me in Tulare County, I'm not going to mention his name, but anybody who watches this or hears this knows who I'm talking about. Um, I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. I, I always get, get the same charges, always the same three. So come on, give me my two months out here in County so I can go home. Home is unit 21. You know, on my, on my pillow was a roll of toilet paper. So that's fine. Let's get this over and done with. Cause I'm, I'm tired. You got me up at 3am to get me to court, man. Give me my two months and let me go home. And he said, no, you, sir, are a habitual criminal. You're going to state for three years, eight months. <clears throat> There's a question in a piece of our, one of our literatures in step one, where it says, um, what was the crisis that brought you to recovery? That moment, standing in court, when the judge said, you're going to prison for three years, eight months, that was my moment of crisis. I had lots of other, I'd been living in a cardboard box for nine years up to that point, right? I mean, totally outside homeless. But that moment, when he told me prison, my brain said, dude, run. Well, look, I'm gaffled up. I even got chains on my, uh, on my, on my ankles. I'm surrounded by deputies. I'm in a courtroom. That's a judge, right? There's nowhere to go, but my brain says run. That animalistic behavior, right? Yeah. When you're stripped down to a fight or flight, right? It's time to go fight or flight. And exactly. so like just going back, right? Like being 10 years old, right? And having this, this happen to you. Like I, I know for myself, I was raised in a in a loving home. My parents loved me, yeah. but there wasn't real strict boundaries and things like mm. this, right? Mm -hmm. So would you say like that moment in court was the first time that that, that strict boundary was like, because I know when I went to treatment, it was like, holy, what is this? Yeah. Right? Get up, make your bed, tuck in your shirt, shave your face, right? Those, those simple things that a lot of people learn growing up. I was learning them as a, as a 34 year old man. Right. 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 Now it, my dad tried, right. My dad was Navy. Um, my dad was Oki, Arky, white Navy. And my mom, um, she was mostly Hispanic, um, Latina. And, um, but they were very different people. She was very, 
um, I would say liberal. I don't want to get political, but she was very liberal, socially liberal. And my dad was the exact opposite. Now, I think in, you know, before recovery, I used to blame them for the confusion in my household. Right. You know, but now I have a different perspective. You know, the, the, the steps changed the way that I perceive myself and the way that I perceive my past. Um, I now see that I have both qualities. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. It, it's the way that I fold my towels because he's Navy, right? It's the, my dad, I, I, I took structure, stability, and accountability, which is really important in my recovery in my life today. But my mom taught me, um, she never met a stranger. She taught me the joy of cooking. I'm a cook. I love to cook. Uh, I love to cook. But also she taught me the joy of music. Um, my dad listened to Dean Martin. My mom listened to Elvis. Radically different right. point, points of view, right? So I grew up, um, uh, my parents divorced early, but my dad was always in my life. It never disappeared. Um, both of them loved me, but of course my dad was old-fashioned, oaky. I, um, I have no memory of him ever saying, I love you. Ah, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> that thing, you know. Um, my mom was very nurturing. And um, um, so I, I, I don't blame my parents for my disease. Um, I do know that they played a part in it. Yeah. Because both of them were alcoholic. I know that my mom's dad was alcoholic. I never got to know anything about my dad's dad, but um, that broken part of our brain runs deep in my family, especially now, my 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 nuclear family. Um, it didn't skip anybody. Right. Everybody in my family has got this disease, but I'm the only one who found the rooms of recovery and was able to find relief from from that pain. So, you know, in, in honestly, like where we hang out, it doesn't really matter. This question, it doesn't really matter. It only matters what we want to do about it, right? Yeah. But I hear a lot of debate going back and forth, and I don't even know if it makes any relevance. But do you think this is something that passes on? Do you think it's like the trauma that passes on generationally? Or do you think this disease is actually in us before it comes to full blue? Because I, I, I hear some people say this. I hear some people say that. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It only matters what you want to do about the problem, right? right? When we get to where we need to be. But like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, uh, I, I've studied. I'm, I'm, I work. My profession requires that I get some education right. on this. Okay. Um, yeah, um, it's in the genes. It's in the genes um, because they can, you know, they can take some of your DNA and and they can say, oh, look, this guy has blue eyes. Because that's the blue eye marker. We've identified that. We know what that is. Oh, look, this guy has blonde hair. We know that. We don't even have a picture of him, but we know he has blonde hair because this is the blonde hair marker. Right. All right. Um, so when they look at your DNA, they can see the addiction gene. Right. All right. It doesn't make you an addict. You don't come out of the womb strung out, but it puts you to a very much higher degree of chemical dependency if you use or abuse certain substances, right? Yeah. It was in my family way before I was born. 
Well, in that genome marker, right, if you take it further, it could also be a positive thing, right? Once we get clean, we tend to excel at things. Sure. I, I tend to believe Michael Jordan's an addict. He just picked up a basketball oh, instead, of, instead of a bottle or a pill or a, a fix, right? Right. So, I, you know, and that's the thing I think that a lot of people misconceive is that thing that brought us to our knees can also become a gift if we learn how to recover. And it's not about the drug. Right. The, the disease. No, the drug is part of the symptom. I, I'll try this. Say you have a bug, a flu or a cold or some kind of virus. Um, but you have a bug inside of you. It's not the bug that causes us life problems. It's the symptoms of the bug. It's the coughing and the sneezing and the runny nose, the congestion, the headache, the fever. Right? Yeah. So you can go to uh, the doctor or the pharmacy or, you know, Walgreens and get something over the counter, some prescription uh, medication that clears up the symptoms. Okay, no more coughing, no more headache, no more sneezing, but you still have the bug. It doesn't make the bug go away. It just covers up the symptoms. Right. So much like addiction, right, I can cover up the symptom of the disease of addiction by not using drugs, I still have the bug. Right. It, it is a, um, a, 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 a deformation of the brain. It is a brain disease that, that uh, exhibits itself in abnormal behavior. I mean, who in the world would say getting a fix is more important than attending my kid's birthday party? Right. Right. I, 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 that, that's, that's almost inhuman. Animals wouldn't do that. Animals show up for their offspring and they're young, you know? Yeah. But, um, but we humans, we get this broken part of our brain. We call the disease of addiction. Um, or the 12 step programs we attend call it the disease of addiction. My, my job calls it other things, but I'm not going to go into a 12 step recovery room and say, Oh, it's, it's, it's not a disease. Right. <laughs> yeah. That that's just foolish. And I don't need to do that. But animals take care of their young, but we, we, this thing happens to us and it becomes more important. The, the brain becomes hijacked and it becomes more important than, you know, our own nourishment, our own well being. Right? right. It's crazy. So, so looping back around to Larry, right? Mm -hmm. We're standing in front of that judge. He lays out that sentence. You know, do things start changing that moment? I mean, you get the fight or flight thing going on. You're thinking about running. So what happens next? I mean, what happens next in your journey? Um, well, early on, immediately after that, I think I have to finish that story. I was still in the courtroom, still facing that judge when he told me I was going to go to prison for three years, eight months. And the white noise hit me and just everything. I'm going to prison. And he leaned back in his chair and he just sat there and watched. I now know that he was watching me. He was reading me and he can see. He could watch my face going. He could watch life just. <laughs> he could see my face. Oh, I'm going to prison. I'm going to prison. Right. But he just let it simmer. I understand now, and we'll probably get to that, but I understand now 
that he was just reading me and he was letting it simmer. As it turns out, fear's a great motivator. Right, right. So um, after a while, he finally spoke up and said, or, oh, wait, there, wait, there's an or? Or you can agree to do this little program that we got here called Drug Court, and I'll let you go home tonight. Well, I didn't have a home. I lived in a cardboard box on a ditch bank. But if you release me tonight, that means I can get high because I haven't got I haven't used in 35 days. I'm dope sick. Right. All right. Physically, psychologically, emotionally, I'm in pain because I need some dope. Well, I agreed to do his I agreed to do his program with zero intention of doing his program. Just let me out. Because they've done that before in the past. This is a classical conditioning. If you say yes to their program, they'll release you. <laughs> hey, don't you guys know it's me? Every time you let me out, I don't show up. Right. So they, uh, I, I got back to the jail and they said, hey, roll it up. That's the verbiage for your, you're going home. Call someone. And the only phone number that I had memorized was my dealer. So I called her. She said, okay, I'm on my way. And there's this psychological thing that happens with <sighs> it's on its way. Right. I start feeling better already. Right. The anxiety is starting to melt away. All right. The shit is on its way. And I start to feel better already. So she arrives and I give her a big hug and we get out to the car and I'm fi fishing around under the seat looking for the tray. She said, I'm coming to pick you up at jail. I'm not going to bring anything out here. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> hurry, hurry up. Let's get home. Hurry, hurry up. Let's get home. Well, yeah, a second ago, I referred to her as my dealer. As it turns out, she was really my friend. She got me home. She kicked everybody out of the house. She made me dinner and locked me in her bedroom and wouldn't let me have any. Even though I had just agreed to do a program instead of going to prison for three years, eight months. I didn't care. Yeah. I, I need a hit. She did care. She didn't want me to go to prison. So she wouldn't let me have any of that night. And the very next day, she dropped me off Wednesday night. She dropped me off in front of this building. I did not want to be there. I had this. Well, it's a court card, but I had this autograph card <laughs> that I was charged with collecting autographs. And I walked into my first meeting of Narcotics Anonymous. And I was horrified because all these people, they were all like being happy and shit and <laughs> smiling and hugging each other. What's up with that? Right. And I did not want to be there. I was so frightened. I was so out of place. I didn't belong there. And I didn't want to be there. And I sat next to the door because I'm not staying. And there was one guy in this meeting who I grew up with. I'd known him at that time for 50 years probably. His little sister was the first girl I ever kissed. So when he stood up in the middle of the meeting, he looked right at me and he said, 
Welcome to recovery. Welcome to the meeting. This is a program for people who want to be here, not for people who, who have to be here. So if you don't want to be here, there's the door. And I'm like, sweetie, he's talking to me. All right. Because I don't want to be here. Right. Right. I got up in the middle of the meeting. I walked up to him and said, can I have your autograph? He said, I ain't signing that. Sit down. Meeting's not over. Like, I didn't understand meeting etiquette. Right. But wait a minute. You just told me I could leave. So just sign this so that I can leave. Well, he wouldn't sign it. I sat back in my chair and I didn't understand meeting etiquette. I didn't know be quiet. I didn't know that, you know, and I'm rumbling and I'm bumbling. I'm very unhappy with life at this moment. I'm dope sick and all these people are being happy. That ain't cool, man. Nothing's funny. Nothing's funny. I want to get out of here. And the guy sitting next to me, he did this crazy thing. He extended his hand to me. And without thinking, I shook his hand. God, what a mistake that is. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, now what is he going to do? He's going to pray over me. He's going to try to save me. And, and uh, as it, look, this guy's name sitting next to me, his name wasn't Bob. It wasn't Joe. His name was Jesus. <laughs> See, you're laughing. Yeah. I can laugh about it now. Yeah. It wasn't funny then. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like this is my luck, right? Of all the meetings in the world, I have to walk in and sit next to the Mexican Jesus. Right. right? <laughs> and, and, and apparently the Mexican Jesus is a Tecato. And I didn't know what a Tecato was. But uh, it sounds like a fish taco. But for the life of me, I can't understand why <laughs> anybody would say, my name is Jesus and I'm a fish taco. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I had some really stupid questions. And, and well, who better than the almighty I'm sitting right? next to, right? So he took me into the lobby because I was being disruptive in the meeting. I didn't know that that was a thing. Um, he took me into the lobby and I asked him these two really stupid questions. How do you do this? What am I supposed to do? And Jesus and all his wisdom said, don't drink, don't use, and you keep coming back. Now at the time it didn't make sense. And now 22 and a half years later, with all the things that I've learned, all the love, all the information, all the knowledge, all the help, all the people developing an understanding of a power greater than myself, everything that I've learned in the last 22 and a half years, none of it more important than that very first day. Right. It became apparent to me that it was the not drinking and the not using that got my head clear enough to understand the things you guys were talking about when I kept coming back. Now, my detox was severe, the psychological detox. Um, you know, on September 27, I could pee clean. And that's why that counselor guy gave me that date. I, I now understand because I now know him. Um, but that doesn't mean I can think clean or act clean or behave clean or, or feel clean. I could just pee clean, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I had about five months clean when... head popped out. It just dawned. I just kind of woke up, not out of bed, not first thing in the morning. I mean, I just kind of came to one day and went, 
unclean. Now, I hadn't used in five months, but it just now struck me that I used to dream of this. Back in the early 80s, uh, when, you know, every time she's around, blah, 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 and every time I'm over there, blah, 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 and everybody that I hang out with is blah, 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 you know, the constant chaos and drama and trauma and, you know, just, um, you know, the, the important topics of the day, like that bitch stole my lighter. Let's get her. You know, <laughs> like that, that was important. And, 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 and back in the early eighties, I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to go home. I, I want to take care of my boys. I want to be a dad. I'm going to get a job. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do good. And then 45 minutes later, the onset of withdrawal kicks in and I got to have some. Right. Cause I'm a, I don't, feel very good right now. And at that time I decided that, well, if I can't stop using, then I'm going to be the best dope fiend that I can. And Oh boy. <laughs> I became a very good, you know, it's called uh, uh, survival tactics. Okay. Um, I was a failure at everything except being a dope fiend. I was pretty good at that. <laughs> so with five months clean, it, it just dawned on me that, I used to dream about this and now I have it. That was the day that I became a member of the recovery community because my desire to stay clean outweighed my fear of going to prison. Right. And can you explain, was it the fear that kept you coming back for the first five months? Because now I'm pretty sure you have a pretty long view on that. Of course. Right. I, I, that's what the whole criminal justice, everything is, is built on. Right. Fear. Right. Fear and pain are great motivators. Yes, they right? are. We're going to send you to prison if you don't shape up. Well, I shaped up. Well, and then there's, and then, so I'm assuming at five months, then there's a shift, right? Do you say an the absolute desire? shift? And so yeah. what, then what does that look like? Then do you jump into the process, you know, both feet in? Yeah. That was already doing some low levels or meeting level. I shouldn't say low level. That's not true. Meeting level, uh, service work is GSR. Um, not for the right reason. I accepted that position so that I can go back to court and tell the judge, I'm a GSR. Right. And he said, you are? Well, that's great, Mr. Ray. Um, what's a GSR? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. gunshot residue. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't even know what a GSR stood for. But, you know, so sometimes we do the things for the wrong reasons and then we get the right results. Yeah. I started being of service uh, to my fellowship and to the program and um, going to meetings became my way of life. Right. I didn't have any other way of life. I was dumpster diving, dope fiend, skid road, tweaker, bum. All right. And, um, and since I wasn't doing that anymore, I didn't know what else to do with my time. Right. And these people wanted you around, even though, you didn't crazy. have anything to give them, right? Nothing to offer them. Nothing. And and that's the funny thing. My my second meeting on on the second day of being out of custody. Ah, I gotta go to those meetings again, man. Um, but I, I had met Ron. Ron is from Brooklyn. 
Okay. And I'm a baseball guy, EJ. I, 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 I'm a baseball first guy. I'm a baseball guy. And, and I met Ron. He's from Brooklyn and he's telling me about playing stickball on 42nd Street. Okay. With the Buick is first base and the manhole is second base. And, and that we use a broomstick, not a baseball bat, a broomstick. All right. And to me, that's romantic. Right. All right. I love, uh, we had, we had grass on our diamonds and we had gloves and, you know, yeah. but, but to play stickball on the streets of Brooklyn. And when, when I realized I had to go to a, a meeting again, maybe Ron will be there. Cause I like Ron. So you're identifying. Yes. So, so I go to the meeting and, and Ron wasn't there, <laughs> but I met Terry Pete. I met Scott Y. I met Noreen J. Uh, I met Bobby D, who is my sponsor now. I met Rick T. I, I met these people that made me feel comfortable and welcomed me when I didn't feel comfortable myself. I wasn't welcoming myself. The only reason I'm here is to collect autographs so that I don't go to prison. And that's the only reason I'm here. All right. It was amazing how that shifted, that those people made me feel comfortable. I wasn't welcomed at my dad's house, I wasn't welcome anywhere. I'd been told, literally been told, you can't come back here. All right. I no, you can't camp in my backyard. No, you can't sleep in my garage. All right. Cause that, that happened in the early nineties, about 91, 92 is when I became outdoors homeless. I hear people share their stories. You know, I was homeless i was living in a van down by the river and and i'm like well you weren't homeless you had a van your van was your home okay that's not homeless all right when you're sleeping in a bush all right and, and then i at one point i i did uh kind of moving on up um i went to best buy and, and got me a refrigerator box all right yeah <laughs> No, I mean, I felt like I was condo living, you know, because I could, I could, I cut a little hole in, in the cardboard and I could peek out, <laughs> I could peek out of my cardboard box. And uh, I thought that, I thought, all right. And I, I once had somebody say, why didn't you, why didn't you sleep in a tent? Because I can get a nickel for a tent, right? right. I'd trade anything for dope, anything, and, but nobody was giving me dope for cardboard at that time. So I figured I'd sleep in it. I once fell asleep with a, 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 a pen torch on fire lit. I fell as I fell out and the box burned down around me and I woke up looking up at the sky. I, I, I thought I fell asleep in my box and uh, I, I got up and there was a cardboard cut out of me on the ground, you know, <laughs> singed my hair a little bit and I, it, the box burned down around me while I was in it. Wow. Yeah. Well, you had pretty good hair back then. Oh, I had hair. Yeah, I see oh, that yeah. picture. You had yeah, pretty yeah, good yeah. hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But those pictures, I look like Charles Manson on LSD. <laughs> yeah, I was a mess. So the things that a human being can get used to when their first priority becomes dope, you know, like looking back on it now, it, it's got to be amazing to you that that you were okay with that type of living. Oh, that's the insanity of the disease. Right. Um, being a dumpster diver was my sustenance. All right. Um, that's how I, well, dying ain't much of a living, but that's how I survived. Right. Um, and look, 
It's nasty inside of a dumpster. There is unspeakable, ungodly things inside of dumpsters. But uh, the insanity of my disease told me that I was okay with that. And that, you know, I was okay living in a cardboard box on a ditch bank, you know, and that uh, I didn't have to show up on time. I didn't have to answer to anybody. I didn't have to play by your rules of your society. And, you know, except I did have to get to the dumpster row before the trash man, because if he got there first, I was SOL. Right. All right. Uh, the insanity of the disease is, is like, I will make this okay in order to fit, as I now know, it's called uh, lack of self-belief. And so when do those things start shifting in your life? You talk about the aha moment at five months, mm-hmm. right? And so now, now you're deciding that you're going to put yourself into this recovery program full time, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what, what, what changes start happening once you start putting your feet, both feet in? Um, my dad had prostate cancer, and at about six months clean. He finally realized that, hmm, maybe Larry really is staying clean. Maybe he really can change, do something. And he basically, he hired me uh, to be his caregiver. He didn't want, he didn't want some nurse, somebody that he didn't know, right? This was an opportunity for he and I to, I didn't know it at the time, make amends. Uh, but he, he was paying me $10 an hour, um, is that my phone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's not good. That's, <laughs> that's not right. good. Let's turn that off. I think I off. forgot to turn mine down Let's too. Turn that so this off. would be a good opportunity to off. do that. Okay. Um, my dad um was paying me to like go grocery shopping, help him around the house, you know, run errands, yeah, you know, mow the yard, whatever. Um, and I um I didn't have any other sorts of income. I didn't have any marketable job skills. I didn't have any training at 0.00 days of high school education. Um, so, uh, going to meetings and doing the drug court, doing treatment, doing all that stuff was my life. And when I finished that drug court program, now what, now what do I do? You know, I, I, I think I need to get a job, but I didn't have any skills. So my friend said, well, uh, um, you know, do you, I didn't, I didn't know how to use a computer. Uh, nothing, nothing. I didn't understand. I was dirt illiterate. Now look, I could turn it on because I could spell power and I had that push button thing. I had that down pat after that, nothing. She said, my friend Tiffany, she said, dude, all you do is point and click. I go, oh, okay. <laughs> look, I broke it already. <laughs> So I, I signed up at the local community community college here in Visalia, College of the Sequoias, because I had to learn how to use a computer. I had to have some, I don't care if you're a baker, a cop, or an Indian chief. In today's society, you have to understand, you got to know how to use it. So I went there during, I took a summer course, and I didn't know that a summer course was a regular course, crammed into four weeks, uh, uh, trial by fire kind of. But I did really well. I, um, um, not, having not gone to high school, uh, taking college, I was definitely afraid to be on that campus. 
because I didn't belong there. All these other bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 20-year-olds, they all deserve to be here. They belong. Not me. I'm just an old dope fiend, right? I was very shy. I was very quiet, very, very timid. But I did very well. It was just a, a couple percentage points shy of an A. And that did something to me. I did really well in a summer condensed course. And in a summer a college course, I did really well. It started to teach me that I can do good, I can be good, I can succeed, right? But I didn't have a whole lot of that belief going in. So after that summer course, uh, my friend says, are you coming back next semester? I said, no. Why would I do that? She said, because they'll pay you. And I'm like, wait, what? Nobody else is paying me anything, right? Look, I, I can clean out your dumpster if that's what you needed, you know, but not, you know, waste management skills I had. But other than that, I, I didn't, I couldn't do anything else. So if, if the school was going to give me money to go to school, well, okay. And boy, did I excel. I, I graduated 3.75 GPA and uh, an honors sash. I was on president's uh, uh, honor roll every semester. I did really, I killed it. Right. I did really, really well. And that changed my belief system, my value system that I can do good and be good and have good. And I would soon add, I could help others. My first semester, I was the timid one. Stay away from me. I don't deserve to be here. The next semester, like, get out of my way, you little shits. I'm going to smash you all, you know? Um, by the third semester, I'm like, yes, you can join my study groups. Because by that time, everybody wanted to be in my study group. Because I, was, I wasn't trying this. I, was, I wasn't trying to achieve this. I just kind of became kind of a leader. Um, in the social work program there at the college, I had, I had developed a really beautiful relationship with the professor uh, who was not one of us, but totally understood addiction. And he became my first professional mentor. And to this day, I, 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 uh, I give him a lot of credit for the way that I developed professionally because if I had just a fraction of the compassion that he had for helping people, I would not only be a better person, I would, I would be a better professional, right? right. So he, he had a lot of influence on me. And so did that first counselor guy from the drug court. Um, um, I, 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 today I understand that those people had a hand in me developing what would eventually become me. Right, it's the it's the belief system, the value system. Right, so that that helped me change a lot. So you messed around and found out you were smart, <laughs> right? You know, I um, in the drug court program, that judge said, "I don't care how long it takes you, but you're not graduating the drug court program until you get a GED or high school diploma. No high school." I'm going to be in drug court for four years, right? That's what I thought. So I went out to the adult school to take the proficiency exam. They don't, they don't give you the GED right away. They, they want to find out where you're at, 
right? What level of education? Well, I don't have a level. I don't have a level. Um, so the, the counselor guy at the adult school was mapping out my schedule for classes. Okay, Mr. Ray, on this day, you need this book and this book because these are your classes. And then on Tuesday, and I'm, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about classes? I'm not here to go to school. I'm here to take the GED test. Well, Mr. Ray, you're, you're not ready. You know, you're not, and I understand that now. Yeah. But you don't hold the key to my, uh, to my prison cell. The judge does. And he said, come out here and take the GED. He didn't say, come out here and go to school. Well, okay, you can take the GD, but I'm telling you, like, I wasn't listening, right? <laughs> I passed all five GD tests on the first try. Wow. Without opening one book, without going to one class. I now know that well, subsequent test- testing taught me about myself that um, I score extremely high in problem solving. And if I see Mary has an apple and Bobby has an apple, how many apples in total do they have? And they give you the answer. It's multiple choice. They give you the answer. All right. Is it 700? Only an idiot would choose 700. Is it 50? I don't think it's 50. And the answer is either two or four. And apparently I'm really good at guessing 50-50. Well, you're probably pretty good at counting other people's stuff by then, too, yes, right? <laughs> yes, but but this is called uh, 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 ah, I forget the terminology, but I, I understand today that the, the the psychological process that I was using to get the right answer, uh, um, deductive reasoning. Right. All right, if they give you multiple choice answers, you just pick away the ones that make the less sense. That's called deductive reasoning. That's how I passed the G. I couldn't even spell algebra, much less. They gave me a test that had letters mixed up with the numbers. And I'm like, hey, hey, I don't speak Greek. I speak English. I don't know what this is, but uh, you gave me the wrong one. Right. I passed algebra on the first try. Wow. Not because I'm smart, because apparently I'm really good at problem solving. And if I can, I, I wasn't trying to do that. I know that about myself today, that I turned this essay or this quiz, I turn this quiz into a problem. You know, it's kind of like MacGyver, you know, he can, it can disarm a nuclear bomb with a paperclip and and some gum. Yeah. But he knows how to problem solve. And I think that's what happened for me. That's how I got through the GED and moved on to, uh, uh, to college and, um, got my degree. I didn't even go to high school and I ended up with a college degree. Easy shift. Okay. Because, uh, I was invited to uh, start interning at a very small local outpatient treatment facility. Um, and I started uh, because like, you know, lots of everybody in recovery, we talked about this before we started the interview. A lot of people in recovery, I want to become a counselor. Right. Well, I didn't think that I wanted to become a counselor until somebody offered me the opportunity to become a counselor. She said, you'd be perfect for what we do. So she pulled me in. I started volunteering 20 hours a week, interning, and then volunteering 40 hours a week. And then they started to pay me $20 
or 20 hours a week and then paying me 40 hours a week. And I was just a line counselor. And then I became the lead counselor. And uh, then I became the office manager for the Visalia office as opposed to uh, Porterville was the main office. And, and then uh, I became program coordinator for Visalia. And, um, and then I became program director for the whole organization. And then in 2014, got an opportunity to buy the company. So I became the owner. And um, wow, sometimes I pinch myself. Um, I've now been working in the courtroom for 20 years. Wow. AJ. Um, for that same drug court program that I had no intentions of doing in the first place. At my sentencing judge, um, I worked in front of him for 10 years. Um, I've seen that man naked. <laughs> I, 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 I think we should I, clarify I, on that. I, I, I suspect not everybody can say that they saw their sentencing judge <laughs> naked. All right. And sometimes when I tell this story, people look at me and go, okay. <laughs> now, we, we, were we were attending a, a conference. It's a week-long national drug court conference over in Menominee, Wisconsin. Beautiful part of the country in June. Great weather. And um, when, when all the, uh, that's during the summer where all the kids are gone. All the students, all the college students had got home for, for the summer. And um, the the um, uh, the room and board is 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 given by the college, but the bathrooms and the showers are just are locker rooms, just like your high school. Well, I suspect because I never went to high school, but like any other school, locker room. All right, and uh, I suspect that some you know everybody's different, but some some guys you know wear their boxers or wear their underwear, some wear their shorts or gym shorts and. Some guys wear nothing, you know, a towel or nothing at all. And um, I walk in first thing in the morning, and there's Judge Roper walking by. Hey, Larry, just a swinging, right? <laughs> and I and, and I, I shout, hi, Judge, good morning, how you doing? And I'm like, I did not need to see that. But, you know, he's, he's proud. Yeah. He's proud. So <laughs> I sat down with him. Um, it was He was so cool because he, he – even though he never had addiction problems, let me check that. He never had drug or alcohol problems, but he understood addiction um, because he educated himself. He saw so many people. Didn't I just sentence you 60 days ago and now you're back in front of me again? Or I think I sent your dad to prison. Wait a minute. I sent your dad and your grandpa to prison and now I'm sending you to prison. And, and they'd get out and they'd be in front of him again. And he thought this isn't working. The whole judicial system is not working. And, um, uh, at that time, uh, Dade County, Florida had started the drug court program. And so he implemented it here in Tulare County. And, um, he, he, he changed, well, specifically me. He changed people's lives. Right. Give you a chance to get out of that cycle and, and do something better with your life. So um, I got to work in front of him for 10 years, and uh, I've been working in the courtroom for 20 years now. And um, look, I, I'm not an attorney. 
And it is, in fact, illegal for me to practice law in California or any other state. But I picked up a few tricks in 20 years. I've paid attention, right? So our local recovery community, everybody says, oh, call Dude. Well, let me clarify that. My family nickname is Dude, all right? So everybody in my family and all my closest friends, even my wife, everybody calls me Dude, right? Not the Dude. Because that that would be the big Lebowski, right? right? Jeffrey Lebowski is the dude. I'm just dude. dude. Now, my wife, Jackie, she's from Manchester, England, love. All right? And the Brits cannot properly enunciate the hard curve of the letter A. So she would call me Laurie. Right? No. No, I'm not Laurie. But, but she can properly pronunciate Dude. So she calls me. Everybody calls me dude, right? Um, and now I got so far off the track and I can't find my way back to the freeway. Um, where was we? Um, the judge and me being in the courtroom, everybody in the fellowship would call me and, and hey, you got a problem? Let's call Larry. All right. Let's call dude. And man, if I have some knowledge or some skill or something that's going to help people, heck yeah, call me. Yeah. In fact, there was a time early on when I, why are these people bothering me? You know, why are you calling me? And I, I, I eventually came to the point where people think I can help them. Right. That became such a, a spiritual joy. If I have something that can help you, yes, call me. What a blessing that is right so now people always call me and say hey can you give me advice you know can you tell me how to do this or where to go who to call or whatever yeah absolutely it's strange how i have enmeshed myself not on purpose this is this is a higher power thing how i've become part of the not just uh, addiction treatment but the criminal justice aspect of it um I've been doing H&I out here at the county jails since 2004. And H&I is hospitals and Hospitals and institutions, yes. Uh, uh, our sheriff, Mike, I don't know. I don't, I don't have to practice the sheriff's anonymity here, but uh, he's a good guy. I really like this. I really like this guy. He gives me a, it's not a badge. It's, it's, a, it's just a, a name. It's a badge, but it's not a sheriff's badge. <laughs> Uh, I'm part of the Tulare County Sheriff's Inmate Programs. I'm a volunteer, and I get to go out there and do meetings with incarcerated addicts who can't go to meetings. That's, that's and, pretty cool. Oh, oh, From a cardboard box, oh, right? To, you know, and, and so, like, you kind of stole my next question, but I mm-hmm. still want to ask it. So do you, how long – so everybody's starting to figure out Larry's pretty smart, right? And sometimes us, right – we're the last person to, to give ourselves some sort of credit. Right. Like how long did it take you to figure out that, that you were, you had something to give this world, right? Not only, you know, cause we are pretty good at, at, at trying to sustain ourselves, but then giving back, right. Is the key to this thing, right? To this, the key to this thing. We're going to break that down, EJ. Um, and I'm going to do my best to answer that. Um, I had three years clean when my second, my first sponsor got loaded. My second sponsor passed away, but before he died, he gave me a book for my third birthday. So I was only three years clean. 
but he was also the owner of the treatment facility that I was working at. This book was called Letting Go of the Person You Used to Be. That's a pretty catchy title because I had a person that I used to be that I really needed to let go of. Um, I didn't know it at the time because it, it doesn't say it on the cover of the book, but that was my introduction to the way of the Buddha. Um, I've been practicing Dzogchen, traditional Tibetan Buddhist meditation and chanting since 2003. Your question about when did I realize that, you know, I was smart, if that's the verbiage you want to use, that, or I had something that I can do to help. Um, three years clean, I was introduced to this path, this way that started to teach me how to stay away from ego. All right. So the question is, when did I realize I had something that gets me in trouble? All right. Having the knowledge that I have some skill or I don't know, some knowledge that can help other people. Now that's cool, but it's also very dangerous. Right. And we've seen it happen with many, many people gain this knowledge or this skill and it blow them up spontaneously combust from within, right? Because I got, I'm I'm me now. I I have this skill. I'm going to help you. (laughs) I fly around the rooms of recovery and I'm going to help you get your kids back and I'm going to help you get a job and I'm going to help you clear up your past record because 1203.4 expungement is my specialty. No. Yeah. Well, it is, but no, (laughs) no. If you start taking credit for that, and, and like, I'm going to help you. That's, that will, I know this, that will destroy me from the inside. It's a gift. And you have to, you have to give that gift back. All right. Um, so we're going to segue into my gift to you, EJ. I'm so proud of what you do here for telling our recovery story. I don't know if you have this book yet, but this is a, you do have this? I have the, the white copy that okay. they gave away at Area. Okay. But this is fancier. The, oh, okay. Well, then you can give one of the copies uh, um, away to a newcomer. Right. Bless them, right? <clears throat> My little sister was still is still dumpster diving, and she saw me on the street one day, and I pulled over, and she said, Dude, I found one. I found a book oh that's all right we could believe yeah it. yeah and um she said do you want it and i thought well you know I, I can find a home for it i i have my own but uh i can find a home for it so i, I threw it on the on the bed of the truck and it sat there for a couple of days until i went to clean out my truck and i looked at this book and the color was a little bit off the color wasn't the same even the embossed color on the front of it was different. And then I noticed it had silver gilding around it. And it had a, it had a bookmarker. Wait a minute. This isn't just a regular <clears throat> book. So I opened it up. And the second page was uh, parchment paper. And I read it and it said, 
this commemorative edition of this book was printed in commemoration of the one millionth copy of this book, to which there was only 1,500 copies made, and this is number, and it was hand-numbered with a pen. It was hand-numbered. And I look, I'm looking at this book, and this, this book is like, it, it's a commemorative issue, a special edition, and like, I love that stuff. Right. Okay, the literature, our life-saving literature, that stuff speaks to me. That stuff is important to me. And I'm saying, oh, my God, this, 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 this book represents me in every way, in every way. It's, it's a little rough around the edges. It's got a little silver going on. Okay, right. it came out of a dumpster, <laughs> right? My sister gave it to me, and I thought, what an incredibly special book this is. And I held on to it for, I, I, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. I don't know. On a shelf. On a shelf. Every once in a while, you know, I have to dust it off just so that it can go back on the shelf. And I thought, that's not, that's not its purpose. So I was asked to uh, be the invited to be the kickoff speaker for the convention in Stockton. And I took that book with me and I got the attention of somebody of a newcomer. So I told that story that where this book came from, my sister found it came out of a dumpster and I gave that book to a newcomer in Stockton, knowing that I would never see that person again. And that book, I would never see that book again. And that's okay because our life-saving literature doesn't save lives while it's sitting on a bookshelf. It needs to be in the hands of the recovering person, right? So she was so appreciative, the newcomer who came up and, and received this, and it just felt good. And yeah. it just felt good. And then I don't know how many years later I was, I was in Stockton for a meeting. I, I don't remember what it was about, but, I told the story about this book and at the convention, I told the, I told the story about this special edition book. And from the back of the room, this lady jumped up and ran towards me. And it was her. It's me. You gave me goosebumps. You gave me that book. I still have that book. All right. So, you get to choose, EJ. Um, I need a pen because I need to write something in here. Here's what we got. Spiritual principle of the day, right? September 27. This is also for you. Oh, nice. Um, that's my clean date, all right? I don't have my glasses on right now, so I, I can't. I, I can see that I'm holding a book, but that's all I can see, <laughs> all right? But uh, September 27th is my clean date, and I, I want to write something in here as a gift for you for inviting me to come do this. I'm honored uh, to come do this with you, and I don't know how much time we have left, but I suspect we're getting short. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you round it up? How do you close it up? We usually fill it out, right? So I was it's funny because I have like a biological clock now that's like a forty-five minute hour thing. Yeah, okay. But before we before we wrap it up, yeah. Like what would you what would you tell somebody that might be listening to this 
by accident on purpose, right? Somebody out there that's still struggling with this disease and they haven't found the way that you found the way that I've found, um, what would be something that you might tell somebody like that? God, it, it, it is, it is so tough because you can lead a horse to water and you can't hold their head under it. Okay. Um, you can lock them up, beat them up, threaten them, but you, you can't get a person clean. Right. Um, I know my personal story is, I didn't know how to get clean. You know, it, EJ, are you are you an experienced mountain climber? Absolutely not. Okay, okay. Let's say you wanted to learn how to climb mountains. Right. Who would you ask to teach you? Somebody who knows how to climb mountains. Okay. Right? Okay, we're on the same page, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. I come to recovery, and I know diddly squat about recovery. I don't know. Not, not only do I not know how to get and stay clean, remember the story? I quit back in the early 80s dreaming about getting clean. So when I got here, I didn't know how to do this. And I certainly didn't want to ask for help because, I don't know, maybe it's our culture, or, you know, the, the, our, our society we're raised and I ain't asking nobody for help, you know? Right. Um. How about, can I buy you a cup of coffee? You, you want some help? Let me come pick you up. We'll go to a meeting. And I'm not going to force feed anything onto you. I'm not telling you you have to do anything because that ain't going to work. Right? Right. Maybe Ron from Brooklyn will be in the room. Maybe Noreen J will be in the room for this newcomer. Bobby D, my sponsor. I've been working with Bobby coming up on 20 years now. I've been working the same sponsor for 20 years. The uh, the relationship that he and I have developed is, you know, unmatched. I, I, I don't even know I can find the words to describe what he means to me. But I can't force recovery on anybody. But I bet you the spirit of recovery can touch something about the soul of a human. And you never know where it's going to come from. You never know who's going to say it or what is said. But I believe that is the way. Right? Right. I'm not here to teach. I'm not here to preach. I'm not here to tell you what you have to do. I'm just here to tell you what I did. Here's what it was like. Here's what it's like now. And here's what happened. Somewhere in that story, somebody is going to identify with it. That's exactly what happened with me. I can't force this on onto anybody, but I sure would like to give that anybody a chance to hear it for themselves. So, I think we need to make ourselves available, not just as recovery people, but as people, human beings. This podcast, EJ, somebody's going to hear one of your episodes. And, and I, I suspect it may have already happened. Someone contact the email or, you know, on social media or something, because now I got you on TikTok. Right. All right. <laughs> um, 
um, somebody's going to send you a note and say, EJ, thank you. Because, right. because Jared B said something or because, uh, 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 Russ said something or, or Richard a rich a, huh? Huh? <laughs> rich a said something. Okay. That, that touched my soul. And, and God, are you kidding me? Just come here and have a coffee. I want to buy lunch. If you guys are hungry, we're going to go across the street and grab some super taco. But just this opportunity that my past and my experience might be the conduit for that newcomer to say, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll give that a try. Right. Isn't that the spiritual way? Isn't that, that's beautiful, man. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to take any credit for it at yeah. all. Like I'm just living my best life today, me and my wife and my grandkids. And, and, um, I didn't even get to, you know, my son's suicide a year and a half ago, having to survive that pretty, pretty, pretty difficult. Um, but how I've grown from that really you can find a silver lining in your son's suicide. Yes. You can find a silver lining in your son's suicide. Wow. Because, um, Jim H from Modesto, his son and my son died nine days apart. Mm. And when I heard Jim share his story, about his son, Jordan, there was a cathartic magic that happened that I didn't know needed to happen in me with me and Vance, my son. And now Jim's story and my story with both of us losing our sons will have a positive effect on somebody. And that's a silver lining, right? That's a, that's a finding a positive in a negative and being able to help somebody because we went through pain. That's how this is supposed to work. Right. I just appreciate the opportunity to share my story that somebody might be able to get something from that. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's amazing. Well, I just, you know, in this podcast, I feel like this generation we can no longer afford to hide behind the cloak of anonymity. Mm. These stories need to be out there for people to consume because there's so many people out there, you know, telling people there's another way mm -hmm. to get clean. Yeah. There's yeah. a different way to do it. And there are multiple ways, mm -hmm. but we know this way works. Mm -hmm. So we can't afford to idly sit back anymore and wait for people to come to us. They need to be able to find us. They it. need to be able to find a Larry. They need to be able to find a Jared Not so B. anonymous really applies to me because if every judge in Tulare County knows this about me and my grandkids know this about me, why do I care about everybody in between? That's right. I respect that some people need to be anonymous for multiple reasons, but that's not my story. Right. I'm okay with everybody knowing this is who I am and what I am, right? Well, cool. and one more thing. You owe yeah. me a hug. That's how we end. All right. right. I guarantee, guarantee, hug me one time like this. And he didn't let go. <laughs> I'm okay with that. And he didn't let go. And my brain is going, okay, okay, are we done? <laughs> and, he, and he said, are you getting uncomfortable yet? And I said, a little bit. And he goes, hold on a little longer. It'll pass. It'll pass. 
We can get used to anything, huh? Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Larry. Beautiful. I appreciate this too. Yeah, man. You know, and when I see you down the road, do you have a white coffee?